The reading this morning is Esther, chapter 5, verse 9, to chapter 6, verse 14. And this can be found on page 504 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. And page numbers for those are on the screen above. Page 504, beginning at verse 9. Haman went out that day, happy and in high spirits, But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends in Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought to him and read to him. It was found, recorded, that there was Mordecai, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who was in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak with the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let him bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them them robe the man that the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and he led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. 
While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Chris, for reading that, and thank you for adding the dramatic flourishes as well. Um, we definitely needed that to, to bring out Haman's uh, downfall, so thank you. Um, I'll pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this passage in, in the book of Esther. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach each one of us, open our hearts and minds to hear from you. And what I've prepared, Lord, I pray in some way would be a blessing and that that which is not helpful or just off on one, Father, may it fall away. And uh, may your word stand and change us to be the people you've called us to be. Amen. So, as I mentioned, Mark, one of my uh, fellow co-workers who met with me this week to look at the passage to help me with my sermon prep, he's not a Christian. Uh, Well, Mark and Paul uh, had never read the book of Esther. Uh, they'd never read this passage, and it was interesting that Mark's first sort of uh, take-home sort of comment was, wow, this is so Shakespearean. You know, it, it's got all the twists and turns, and, uh, and the one thing that he honed in on was the, these characters with deep flaws. And we sort of said, well, yeah, you know, Shakespeare was working off Tyndall a bit and riffing off the New Testament, so, you know, it, it's kind of to be expected. But I thought it was brilliant. You know, he was hooked. He was he was intrigued. Actually, I had to stop him reading. He was on his phone, and he had gone past six and was up to chapter nine. I was like, whoa, 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 come back. Anyway, I hope it's got you hooked. I hope this series has got you intrigued. Uh, the Bible scholar Karen Jobes, who's written a fantastic commentary on this book, she's brilliant, um, says, this is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. While Haman plots Mordecai's death, the king plans to honor Mordecai's faithful service. The king's aided by Haman's idea, superbly enacted by uh, Pete and Richard earlier, um, with this extravagant reward, arrogantly thinking he's the recipient. And we, the reader, are invited into the intrigue as we see this slippery slope start to fall and Haman meet a disastrous end. And just to make it very clear, chapter 6, and particularly verse 1, is a literary pivot. It's a vital pivot in the whole book of Esther. It marks the beginning of a great reversal of fortunes for God's people. And yet, the clocks are ticking. And there are two clocks ticking. One, the clock is ticking the countdown for uh, a few months to go uh, to this royal law which allows a full-blown attack on the Jewish people throughout Persia. Queen Esther, as you know from chapter 4, has already enacted her courageous plan. She set it in motion to win over King Xerxes and and undo this evil edict. But there's another clock ticking, and this clock is unknown to Esther. And it's counting down hours, because Mordecai is facing death. And both death warrants are courtesy of the Prime Minister, the King's right-hand man, Haman, this self-absorbed, power-hungry, racist intent on ridding Persia of God's covenant people. The irony is, as well, that this scattered community, the Jews, are not a threat. In fact, 
It was God's purpose and commission that they would be a means of peace and blessing to their Persian neighbours, which goes back to a letter Jeremiah sent years before, whilst the Jews were in Babylon. So it's fair to say, this is a dark time in the history of God's people, in God's kingdom. The odds are stacked against his people. Jerusalem is weak and fragile. People's faith seems to be just as hidden as God, God's presence. And yet here we have a clear ray of light, a north star of hope in the darkness. You see, this is real medicine for God's people today because God, even in his hiddenness and silence, as you've been seeing over the weeks, is faithful and at work to rescue and restore his people. So, I think first off, what we see in this passage, and have your Bibles open at chapter 6, is that God is at work through this sleepless king. Small things. Sleep is a good gift, isn't it? Uh, Just as soon as it's taken away from you, you notice how vital it is just to function normally. Anxiety levels increase, concentration decreases, the smallest issues are blown out of proportion. Uh, Helpful feedback, whether from family or colleagues, becomes on the level of a character assassination sort of, you know, just wipes your day completely level criticism. And the worst thing at night, especially if there's someone fast asleep next to you or in the room next to you or in the house, is how on earth can they sleep like a log whilst I'm wide awake? Sleep is a gift. On my bedside, I have this cracking little book, Why Can't We Sleep? by Darian Leader. Very insightful. It's amazing. I read two pages before I go to bed and I'm out like a light. (laughs) But one of the statistics that did stand out was that last year... Uh, Dr. Leader uh, estimates that the sleep industry, there's an industry, sleep aid industry, is estimated to have generated $76.7 billion. That's a lot of mattresses, isn't it? Um, So a good night's sleep is not just a gift, but it's costly. And we see the cost here with King Xerxes. Have a look at verse 1. It just so happens on that night, that night being the evening, the nighttime after Esther's first feast, King Xerxes could not sleep. Perhaps he shouldn't have had that kebab on the way home after Esther's feast. That always does it. Or maybe some youths had nicked a camel and were racing in the street outside the palace windows. We're not told why he couldn't sleep. And unlike the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, remember him from Daniel 2 and 4? who was so disturbed by a God-given dream, it had a message, it needed to be sorted now, in a very Nebuchadnezzar way, get Daniel, who could only tell us what it meant through God. Xerxes gets nothing. No special dream, no special message, no special revelation, just can't get to sleep. And yet it just so happens that the one thing he chooses to do to pass the hours away, is have his chronicles read to him. This would be the equivalent of you going through your monthly target reports or checking your appraisal from last year to look at your KPIs. It seems a very odd choice, doesn't it, for a king of Persia when he could have wine, food, and the harem is only a quick call away. The government records. It's like BBC Parliament on all the time, on loud. He chose the one thing that would surely get him back to sleep. 
And ironically, it does the exact opposite. It just so happens, the scribe reads from a section of the scroll about a foiled assassination attempt five years ago. Xerxes' attention is grabbed. What honor and recognition has this Mordecai received? What do you mean? Nothing. Not even a bottle of red from the cellar. You see, Persian kings were all well known for observing a culture of honor and gratitude and generosity, which especially made sense if you think about the fragile and violent political context they lived in. In a world where people looked after you, you needed to look after those people. And in fact, the Greek historian Herodotus uh, records that this Xerxes, this King Xerxes, eventually was murdered by two of his military officers in his bed. And just as a quick side note application, the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry makes a really big point, interestingly, of this, in this passage of highlighting gratitude. Um, thankfulness should not be overlooked, full stop. Christians especially should be the first to show appreciation and thanks, not, not necessarily massive over-the-top gestures. So just as a sidebar, are you someone cultivating gratitude and thankfulness on the vertical towards God, on the horizontal towards others? Who do you need to thank this week? Anyway, something must be done. The king is now wide awake with an urgent to-do list. And who's in court? It just so happens. Here's Haman, early into work, with his urgent to-do list as well. So let's move on. Because here, um, not there, here on the slides, next we see, in the hiddenness, God is at work to humble a proud enemy. Now Haman, the wrathful is a fascinating character. I hope you've been getting into uh, just the... It's a bit like Netflix, the mind of a killer, and you're sort of seeing behind what's going on. He is a fascinating character. If you haven't already listened to the sermon series, then I'd recommend you do so on Platt's website, and particularly Tim's sermon, uh, which I think it was two weeks ago in Chapter 3, helpfully unpacked the context and some of the background story to Haman especially showing how he stands as this representative head for the enemies of God's people. He is the accuser. He is the destroyer. He is the Satan-type figure against God's kingdom, against God's plan, and against God's people. And in this sorry episode, we see Haman's full colors on display. Did you feel the emotional roller coaster this guy is on? Leaving Esther's feast, what is he? He's happy, he's in high spirits. And then he bumps into Mordecai, boom! Then it's rage, but it's restrained rage, that's better. Then he gets home and he massages his ego with the family and friends, talking about all the wonderful things he's done and who he is. He leaves court delighted with this monstrous plan to execute Mordecai in a typically over-the-top way, which was unjust and cruel. As Archbishop Cramner once said, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. This man was ruled by his emotions and passions. And we see the full extent of his self-absorbed narcissism, don't we, in verses 5 to 9. Let's just look at that again. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? And then we see his wish list. 
which is exactly what we'd expect from someone hooked on approval ratings and recognitions, and yet there's a dramatic twist. His nemesis gets the robe and horse, these signs of royal power. This Jewish nobody, a low-level civil servant working at the king's gate, is now in a position of absolute exclusive closeness to the king. Each proclamation, just as it was read out by Chris, must have stuck in Haman's throat, wouldn't it? He guides this horse through the streets of Susa like a common page boy and towering over him, not on the gallows he built, but on the king's stallion, is Mordecai. Is the man the king delights to honor. And what did it do to Haman? It crushed him. He knew it wasn't him. And he felt it. He wanted to die. Did you notice how he scurries off in verse 12 in grief with his head covered? He's mourning. This is like death. He's humiliated. He's exposed. Now again, I want to recommend a sermon that we, we preached this series um, in 2007 at Platt. And uh, as part of that, I listened to Tim Keller's sermon. And it's one that stood out massively. He does an excellent Uh, extended study on human pride, and you can find it online for free at Gospel in Life. Please do listen to that. But I'm not Tim Keller. Never will be. (laughs) It's not going to happen. So it's enough to say the root of Haman's problem here is, as Isabel already said at the start as we were coming into confession, is pride. It's what C.S. Lewis, in his pivotal chapter in Mere Christianity, chapter 8, what he calls the great sin. And let me just share with you how Lewis describes it. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have of it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way to ask yourself is, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? When other people refuse to take any notice of me or shove their awe in or patronize me or show off? The point is, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Isn't that a spot-on diagnosis of the condition here in Esther 6? Not just with Haman, but with King Xerxes. And not just with Haman and King Xerxes. No doubt to an extent, with Esther and Mordecai. After all, they're flawed believers. And I'm sure as I read that out, you pictured a few people that you thought needed to be here to hear that read out. And therefore, isn't it an accurate diagnosis of me, of us? Haman's pride shows itself in his craving approval and recognition. He needs the king to need him. But it's not just the king. 
He needs the recognition of his enemy, Mordecai. He wants Mordecai to see him. Without that, there's no satisfaction. But even if he did get that, it would be a void. It wouldn't fill him up. The pleasure would fade. You see, pride in our lives is a tyrant that finds no rest. Now, just to lighten the mood, you see this dynamic in that great cultural icon of film history, the Lego Batman movie. Now, I appreciate it's not everyone's cultural cup of tea, but bear with me. You can find the clip on YouTube. There's a bit in the film where Joker and Batman are tussling together, and Lego Joker says, Will you save the city or catch your greatest enemy? To which Batman, midair, hanging off a rope, stops and answers, You think you're my greatest enemy? Sorry, I won't do the Batman voice. That was more like, I don't know, that sounded like a Muppet. Anyway, there we go. Batman said, you think you're my greatest enemy? Joker answers, well, who else drives you to one-up the way that I do? Batman replies without hesitation, Superman. <laughs> Joker, what? Superman? He is a good guy. Are you seriously saying there's nothing special about us? Still hanging there, there is no us. Pan to Joker's face, bottom lip is really wobbling, tears are welling up in his eyes. Batman carries on. There will never be an us. At which point, Joker is heartbroken, full-blown crying. And then Batman fires off another grapple gun to speed away to save the city, leaving Joker broken behind him. It's humorous, but it's strangely uncomfortable. Because it shows that the same powerful desires are at work both in the hero and the villain. They both hunger for the approval of someone they admire. Whether it's the Joker needing Batman's to be Batman's greatest enemy or Batman needing to go to save the city before Superman shows up so he gets the approval of the Lego citizens and Superman's approval when he eventually shows up. Heroes and villains alike are deeply flawed, deeply sinful because of pride. We see it played out, don't we, in numerous ways at work with colleagues who will go to whatever lengths to get the attention of everyone else or their bosses to one-up someone else. Every time I go to the Etihad with the Man City chaplaincy, personally, privately, as I'm going into first team training, I have to pray for myself. Save me from needing their approval. Save me from getting, just, has the boss seen me? Which players have spoken to me? And the prayer is, Lord, just help me serve the people you need me to serve. In my own heart. In family, there's sibling rivalry, isn't there? Where one feels their parent always treats them more harshly or unfairly to the other. You always let them get away with it. Even the comparison games we play, looking down our noses at people thinking they really need help with that issue or this issue. And you know, religiosity makes it even worse, doesn't it? We have our church-based performance index that shows us whether we're in God's good books or higher up the spiritual league table than others. And here in chapter 6, it is as if here God's word through Haman holds up a mirror facing towards each one of us. And Haman says, do you like what you see before you look down on me? Do you like what you see before you look down on me? 
You see, as Lewis concludes, in God, you come up against something which is, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. You see, Haman had come up against God. Even his family recognized that in verse 13. Did you hear this weird counsel going on? Build a massive stake to kill Mordecai, and then, oh dear, you're in for it. But there was truth in that word, that warning in verse 13. And what is it that they latch on to? You know, you've got downfall because of Mordecai. This downfall has started. Mordecai is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. This family, in some way, can see this people group here throughout Persia have something, someone immeasurably superior. It's a Psalm 2 moment. Verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 2 that David writes that introduces the whole book of praise. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Bless are all who take refuge in him. Haman needs to kill his pride by bending his knee with trembling, taking himself off the throne and worshipping God as number one. It's a challenge that remains for us today. Will you worship God's king today? Will you kill your pride by bending the knee? Will you hand over your life to his loving good rule? Or will you continue to believe you are in control? This is your universe. Why should you do it? Because true approval, true love, true security comes by trusting your life to the God who is at work exalting the humble servant. And this is the final brief point. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian writer, philosopher, founder of Libri, used to consistently remind his team, and when he was doing talks would say this regularly, there are no small people in God's kingdom. It is a brilliant reminder we serve a big God who cares for all. So should we, so should we, regardless of status, power, or popularity. Interestingly, did you see Mordecai's response? In chapter 6, Mordecai is a small person. He's a passive participant. Things are just done to him. He doesn't know about the plot to execute him. He didn't have advance notice about the reward. He doesn't kick off in a fuss that it was five years too late. This reward is the first taste, the first sign of the salvation and reversal to come. Mordecai is lifted up to the pinnacle and his enemy is humbled. He didn't seek glory, but he is vindicated and honored. But did you notice the one thing that's really striking about Mordecai? After he's had his ride on the horse, what does he do? He goes straight back to the king's gate. He gets on with his work, verse 11. Unlike Haman, we're not told what his emotional state was. Is he happy, satisfied? Is he embarrassed? Is he posting it all over Instagram? We, we don't know. But actually, what we see is he gets back to his work, which clearly suggests this reward doesn't change him. It doesn't affect him. It doesn't own him. Why? Why is that so big? Well, because we all enjoy praise, don't we? And congratulations. Especially when we've done a good job, don't we? It's right, isn't it? In fact, we're created 
for that. That's why pride is such a killer, because it tries to get that the wrong way. It tries to get that by cutting God out of the picture. And for Mordecai, the praise of King Xerxes wasn't the praise of God. You see, Mordecai, in Mordecai, there's a picture here of God's greatest king, Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to be served, he said, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many. He is the king who willingly gave up his glory to become like us, yet perfectly obedient to his father, without self-absorbed pride. His parade was a stark contrast to Mordecai's, beaten and bloodied, wearing a hideous crown of thorns and a borrowed purple cloak. He carried his cross, he carried his cross to his gallows where he was strung up and cursed by God for our sin. He took hell for us, our punishment in our place. And instead of proclamations of honor and praise, Jesus died to the sound of mocking and jeering jokes. He didn't feel the delight of the Father, just his holy anger. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And silence is his reply. Darkness is his closest friend, Psalm 88, 18. King Jesus takes the full measure of our separation and shame because we too, like Haman, seek our kingdom first. And yet here on the cross is the great reversal of fortunes for humanity. Here is immense grace for all to enjoy, even today. Jesus, who suffered and died on the cross, is risen and exalted. The darkness is beaten. He will return. All nations will recognize him. Philippians 2 Many will bend the knee grudgingly as enemies. Many more will bow the knee in delight and love as friends. And Jesus longs to welcome his friends into their home. This is where we find honor for all who belong to him. Now, as I was praying for Platt this morning and for you, I felt I had to share this as I was praying. I felt that specifically that some of you are feeling overlooked. Whether that's at work or within your family situations, you feel neglected. You're, You're just not seen. That some of you are just going through the motions, whether that's at work, whether, again, with family, whether it's church and and this relationship with God thing. You're feeling overlooked. You're feeling you're just going through the motions. God sees you. God knows you. He's there with you. Be encouraged, but don't be complacent. Come to him. See how big he is. Recognize you're small, but that's great because you have a big savior. And you know what? In Jesus's kingdom, there will be a day when we will come face to face with him. And he will recognize All that you, as faithful followers, have done in service of his kingdom. All the small people, all the small things, everyday life, lived as his ambassadors and followers. And because of his rich grace and love, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share my joy. Matthew 25. That's when we will fully understand and fully experience something that J.R. Tolkien wrote. The praise of the praiseworthy 
is beyond all rewards. Shall we pray? The Apostle John writes, See what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Father, would you, by your Spirit, do a work in our lives, that we, as your followers, would truly know that our richest gain we count but lost and pour contempt on all our pride. Father, may we live in the power of your spirit. Whether far from you may today be a day where we bend the knee and say, Lord, I want your love. I need your forgiveness. Whether we've been walking with you for many years, feeling overlooked, feeling we're just going through the motions, renew us by this powerful love. Help us to live out, looking forward to the day we will see our Savior face to face and hear the words, by grace, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share my joy. May we live to your praise and glory, Father. Amen.